my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, all of it, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Each and every first day of the week, the Lord's one pre-denominational New Testament church comes together to remember the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just as the Lord's church has done since its establishment in the first century AD through Jesus' hand-picked apostles. His church, just as it has done for nearly the past 2,000 years, comes together to remember that night, to remember his betrayal, his arrest, his scourging, his crucifixion, and three days later, his resurrection. As we partake of communion, we think of the agony and the suffering of Jesus. We think of the fact that it was the one time in all of eternity that he was separated from his Father as he who knew no sin became sin for us. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that that is not the only time, certainly, that our Lord personally endured a lot of pain and suffering. Yes, it was incredible, it was awful, it was beyond our ability to even begin to imagine, but again, I want you to understand that is not the only time that our Lord Jesus Christ personally endured pain and suffering as reflected in today's sermon title, How Jesus must have hurt long before the cross he bore. Surely most everybody in here is familiar with or has seen the movie The Green Mile. And if you have, you certainly remember from that movie The Green Mile, one of the central characters, John Coffey, huge, huge, massive, man, played by Michael Clark Duncan, who passed away in 2012. And if you think about that movie, you can stop and, and see several different similarities, how that movie, in some ways, could serve to remind us of some of the things Jesus went through, of the unmistakable similarities between that character, John Coffey, and our Lord Jesus Christ. The initials, Jesus Christ, John Coffey, right? One small similarity. But consider this. In that movie, John Coffey was an innocent, innocent death row inmate awaiting ex execution for a crime he did not commit. Think about that. That parallels with Jesus. One website that I accessed while preparing for this sermon, described John Coffey as, quote, a loner in a brutal 
and cruel world. A gentle giant who felt like a misfit in the world. When Tom Hanks went and talked to his defense attorney, he said John Coffey had no history like he just dropped out of the sky. Coffey had supernatural powers. He could heal people of their ailments as he did for Paul Edgecombs, that is Tom Hanks, bladder ailment, and later for removing the brain tumor of the prison warden's wife. But his powers went beyond removing illness. He also removed evil spirits. John Coffey had the ability to heal and to see the truth in a person just by touching them, unquote. Remember that in the movie? A reported dialogue quote from Coffey that I got from that same website would give us a little insight into the unimaginable pain that such an incredible gift would also bring with it. C consider this. C consider this before I read the quote from that website about this character. What would it be like to walk into a room, into a store, down the street, in a class, wherever, on the job, and be able be able to know the thoughts and the plots and the schemes and all of the evil that others were thinking and planning and plotting and scheming, to, to, to personally experience that in your own head from all of those sources on some level or another. Think about that. To experience on some level all of the pain and suffering that so many around you are intent upon causing or inflicting on others that they are obsessed with, imagine that. Imagine that like a, like a physical force hitting you. And then think of this quote from that website as it quoted the character John Coffey. Listen to these words. I'm tired, boss. Tired of being on the road. Lonely as a sparrow in the rain. Mostly, I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. I'm tired of all the pain I feel and hear in the world every day. There's too much of it. It's like pieces of glass in my head all the time. Can you understand, unquote? That's a quote from the character John Coffey. Can you understand? It's like breaking glass in my head, all this ugliness and, and all of this, this evil and, and everything that, uh, that I feel that people are seeking to carry out. Surely we cannot begin to understand what that must have felt like. And, and certainly I realize it's a fictional character. I understand, but th think about this as an illustration. You know, we, we can't imagine what something like that would be like. We have problems enough, don't we? <laughs> seeking to deal with, with what we do know. We, we have enough problems seeking to deal with the everyday pain and evil and injustice that we do see going on just in the physical around us without knowing people's thoughts. We have enough problems seeking to deal with the plots and the schemes and the, and the pain and the retribution that we suspect 
that some people might have inside, in their, in their pridefulness and their self-centeredness and their, their egoism and, and all of those things. We have problems enough dealing with our own ugly sins and what we are sometimes on the inside without knowing what everybody else is seeking to do. Surely we cannot begin to imagine what it would be like to walk into a room or any scenario and know and feel all of the ugliness and ungodliness in everybody's heart all at once in an overwhelming avalanche. We can't begin to imagine. When you add to that the holiness and the righteousness and the purity of Jesus Christ and how, how ugly and abhorrent sin is to him anyway, then to be able to know what's in men's hearts, how our Savior must have heard on so many occasions. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, reached the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and the scripture says he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to his disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Matthew 26, 37 and 8, and Mark 14, 33 and 4. Yes, Jesus endured incredible pain that, that night. And that next morning when he was crucified, absolutely did. He said, I, I, am, I am sorrowful right to my soul. But again, I would like to suggest to you that there were certainly other times where Jesus experienced this incredible heartbreaking pain and suffering that only the pure and sinless could experience as all of the ugliness and selfishness and sinfulness and evil and anger and retribution of all of those around him crashed in on him. As we begin to look at the scriptures and see this brought forth from the Bible, please keep in mind a few things that we know about God in heaven from the Old Testament. Before, before the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we know from the Old Testament that God knows what's in men's hearts, doesn't he? Scripture tells us that repeatedly. God in the Old Testament knew what was harbored in the heart. That's why he destroyed the world in Noah's day. According to Genesis 5, 6, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, listen, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw that, God saw into the heart. In the Old Testament again, God told Samuel, the prophet, as Eliab, Jesse's first son, passed before him in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. He said, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord sees into the heart. He knows what's there. King David, the one who was eventually anointed and became king, would later on go on to say to his adult son who was about to take over the kingdom, Solomon, in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 9, he said, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. 
and serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands the intentions of the thoughts. Throughout the Old Testament, we know God, God knows what's in your heart. It, it's laid bare and wide open before him. From Psalm 44 and verse 21, which says, God knows the secrets of the heart. To the all-encompassing text of Psalm 139, the whole thing, the book of Psalms shows us just how intimately and intricately the Lord knows what's in the heart. He knows every single little nuance, every little thought and intention that we have. And that should be very sobering to us because we're human beings. Even the best of us do not always have the purest of thoughts and intentions because we're human. We understand that. But I'll get there in a minute. We know that this God of the Old Testament whom we've seen knows the heart. We know that God in the flesh came. And while Jesus was here, he proved time and again that he knew the same thing, exactly what was in people's hearts. Begin with me by turning in your Bibles to John chapter 2. Would you please turn there? When you think about this pure and holy God coming in the flesh, the pain it must have caused him, and this is what I want for us to get, the pain it must have caused Jesus long before the cross he bore, the pain that it must have caused him when he came face to face as a human being with all the evil, sinful, unloving, self-serving ugliness and ungodliness that was in men's hearts, how that must have hurt him. We see the fact that he knew what was in the hearts and minds of men from John 2. Look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew what was inside of them. Turn to me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And again, it's, don't, don't misunderstand. The point isn't of this morning's lesson simply that he knew. That's a biblical fact. The point of this morning's sermon is more along the lines of how much it must have hurt him because he knew when he came face to face with it. Mark 7, beginning at verse 20. And following on to 23, look what Jesus said. He said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within 
and defile a man. He, he knew what was in there. And we will see momentarily that, that he knew specifically in situations exactly what was in people. They didn't have to say it. Now, don't get me wrong, this ability to read men's hearts and minds and to know what was in man served him very, very well. It helped open doors for him to teach. It was, it was a good, but, but this incredible ability was also an incredibly pain-causing ability at the same time. To have to experience the exposure to all of this selfishness and, and evil that is harbored in man's heart as well had to be for him who knew no sin like a house falling on him from every direction all the time. Yeah, Jesus bore incredible pain on the cross. But he also bore some incredible pain, I'm sure, looking into the hearts and seeing the evil around him. Matthew 12, let's look at several of these. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 22. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and spoke. Isn't that awesome? Isn't, that, isn't our God an awesome God? Here's this one who, who has all of these terrible, terrible infirmities, and, and Jesus just heals him. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Their selfish agenda, their pride and their arrogance at not wanting any competition, at wanting to continue to, to, to be considered as the leaders, you, you can see it here. And look at what the next verse says, verse 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts. He could see right into them, right through them. Jesus knew their thoughts. You know, it's like getting up in the morning, you, maybe you've got your blinds in your house down, and you, you, know, you open your blinds up, and you see what's out there, right? Jesus did that with people. He knew their thoughts. He could just whoosh, look right into them. He knew the thoughts they were thinking. He knew the intentions they had. It says Jesus knew their thoughts and said, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? And he goes on, and, and that's a whole different sermon, but Jesus knew, knew what they were thinking. He knew what was in there. Turn to me to Mark 2. Mark 2. Let's begin in verse 1. Again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Mark 2 and verse 2 now. Immediately many gathered together, so there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. 
When they couldn't come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Some of the Pharisees were sitting there watching this. They weren't screaming this out. They were, scripture says, reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're sitting there and they've got these evil thoughts. This beautiful thing has just happened and, and in their heads, in their hearts, they're thinking, you know those little bubbles you see on, you used to see, I realize comic books, you remember those little bubbles on cartoons you see with the thoughts? And then you remember those, those balloons with like the sharp arrow when people were speaking and you could distinguish between two. Y'all remember those? To Jesus, they're the same thing. You might as well say it as, as think it. These people reasoned in their hearts. Bubble, bubble, bubble. No, straight arrow up to the balloon. When Jesus, immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus, and the scripture tells us again, within themselves, they never said this out loud. He said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Scary, ain't it? <laughs> Think about it. Don't shake your, okay, I don't often say this, don't shake your heads, don't, don't, yes, don't, no, just think about it. Have you ever had a thought or a question or something that your intentions were not as pure as Christ? Have you ever had one? Have you ever thought something that you were just glad that other people couldn't read your mind? Very good, nobody moved a head. Every head stayed the same as far as I saw, good. How, how would it be if there was somebody in the room at the point you did that, who you might as well have screamed it? That's who Jesus is. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Again, a different sermon, but, but you see here that, that again, Jesus knew their thoughts. Turn to me to the very next chapter, in Mark 3, verse 1. He entered the synagogue again. A man was there with a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out his, your hand and healed him. But the point is, Jesus was grieved. He was hurt. He was in pain. Why? Because he knew what was in their hearts and it hurt him. This ugliness at, at not wanting to see life given, at not wanting to see a healing take place, that hurt him. It grieved him. It made him angry. He knew what was in their hearts. Again, a couple passages from Luke as well, if you would please. Luke chapter 7. We know the story. Jesus is sitting in Simon the Pharisee's house. This quote-unquote sinful woman comes in. She begins anointing Jesus' feet, wiping them. And so Simon is sitting there. And look what it says. 
Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. He's not talking to anybody else. He's talking to himself. Probably not real loud. This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. You ever muttered something to yourself, kind of in your mind, sort of under your breath? How'd you like somebody to respond to that with Jesus' purity? Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. Can't you just picture the scene? He's got this, this thought, and he's kind of talking to himself, man, if Jesus just knew. He's kind of, he's kind of having this thought, and he's thinking, oh, man, this is so bad. If this guy were a prophet, he'd understand. And so all of a sudden, Jesus said to him, hey, Simon, I got something I want to ask you. Kind of brought back, and thought, okay, yeah, go ahead, what? <laughs> what does Jesus do? He says, let me tell you, I do understand. Oh, he read my mind. Something like that. Turn to Luke 16. Luke 16. Look at verses 13 through 15. Jesus is just concluding a lesson here, and he says, No servant, Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and mammon or God and money. Verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things, and they derided him. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And you know, it wasn't just those around him, others around him, to the exclusion of his disciples, his own disciples. There were times where the scripture tells us that Jesus knew what they were thinking. John 6, 61 and John 16, 19. John 6, 61 and 16, 19. And it was some of those very same disciples who later came to understand. They came to realize. They came to implant it, have it implanted on their hard drive to, to confess and to understand that Jesus knew exactly what was going on in men's hearts and minds, all men's hearts and minds. They showed this when they tried to decide who was going to replace Judas as an apostle in Acts chapter 1, where in verses 23 through 25 says, and they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, watch this, and they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. I, I mentioned in passing, and I'll mention it only in passing again, if you have a chance this afternoon and you're sitting around looking for something to read or you want to get into your Bible next time, read Psalm 139 because that goes along with this. As I said, I mentioned it earlier, but Psalm 139, you know, David says, Lord, before, you know, there's a word on my lip, you know it. Before there's a thought in my head, you know, I mean, God, God knows all of these things. And so I say all this this morning to say this. This is why... You and I 
need to be as careful as we possibly can be, not only of what we say and do, but of why we say and do it. The thoughts, motives, and intentions of our hearts need to be as pure and righteous as the words we say and the actions we take. Now don't get me wrong, Satan's gonna tempt you. James chapter one, verses 12 through 16, the, the mind is the battlefield. This is where Satan introduces thoughts and things. And if we, we dwell on them and we don't do away with them, they can eventually turn into sin and destroy us. And so Satan is gonna to try to get in there. He's going to try to make your intentions He's going to try to make your thoughts. He's going to try to make your desires sinful, things they shouldn't be. Satan's going to keep coming at you. It's what he does. He, he has to win the battle here before it turns into sin. But at the same time, we need to understand when he does that to answer him with scripture, just like Jesus did in Matthew 4, 1 through 10. Our thoughts, motives, and the intentions of our heart need to be as pure and righteous as the words we say and the actions we take, especially in our dealings with one another. Especially. Turn to me, if you would, to Psalm 55. I want you to notice what the scriptures say here. Psalm 55. <clears throat> David wrote this, and I, I want to kind of unfold it in light of what we've talked about. A few selected verses. David, in Psalm 55, beginning at verse 12, is talking about people that he used to worship with. He's talking about people that he worked with, he was in fellowship with, they went to the house of God and they worshiped together, they were, they were friends and co-workers for God. And he says in verse 12, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked in the house of God in the throng. We were so close and so tight-knit, and we worshiped and worked together, but then look what David says about those very people. Verse 15, let death seize them, let them go down alive into hell, for the wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. David, how could you say that? Because of what they've become. And I want us to understand that what they became from what they used to be, the course of that transition from what they used to be to what they've now become, started when they were faithful in the house of God together, but their thoughts and intentions did not match their words. Their thoughts and intentions were evil even though their words were not. That's where it started because out of the heart had come these things. Look at verse 21, the words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. See, 
where struggle begins in the church, where struggle begins with people leaving the church. It begins when we can still be saying the right things, but our thoughts and intentions don't match what's coming out of our mouth. And so we must never let Satan get a foothold in our thoughts and our God knows what they are. We can't let Satan get that foothold. Because it says in verse 23, you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. He's talking about those that used to worship with him, about this transition that was made because it started out with just the, the intentions of their heart were not, were not what they needed to be. That's what he says in verse 21. It's so important not to cause Jesus any more pain than he's already been through by looking into our hearts and finding something less than ought to be there. Turn to me to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Begin with me in verse 22. 1 Peter 1, 22. Since you have purified your souls, Love hearing those Bibles turn. Verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Do, do you see the correlation? Notice the words in verse 22, purified your souls. Sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Do you see the pure connection? We have purified our souls. When you were baptized into Christ and Christ forgave all your sins, did he forgive all your sins? Are, were you purified? It's the same idea. Since you've purified your souls, love one another from a pure heart. Our love for one another had ought to be as pure in our hearts as we have been purified from our sins. He goes on to say in chapter 2 and verse 1, therefore, it follows right along. Remember, there were no chapter and verse distinctions when this was written. Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, connects it to what he just said. We know what it's there for. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the world, word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. What's he saying? You purified your souls, so be pure in your hearts for your love for one another. In order to do that, you put all this other stuff aside. The centerpiece of the book of James, if you will back up one book. James chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. The heart and soul of the book of James, as far as I'm concerned. He says in James 3:13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Do you, do you know what this follows? This follows the very section on the tongue and watching what you say to one another. James chapter 3, you will notice that the first 12 verses are all about controlling the tongue. So now that he's talking about controlling the tongue and what we say to one another, what's he going to go to? He's going to go to the heart 
and what's on the inside because what comes out of the mouth is what's here anyway. So he's tracing it back even further. He says, in fact, in verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking, where? In your hearts. Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic, for envy and self-seeking exist. Confusion and every evil thing are there. How it pained Jesus to see the hurt, the demonic pridefulness, the self-seeking, the evil in the hearts of those around him when he was here in the flesh. It can hurt him no less when he looks into the heart of his disciples today if he sees any of that. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first, there's our word, pure. Then, peaceable. Gentle. Willing to yield. Full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. We all know the word hypocrisy means wearing a mask, meaning a mask like, like a drama, like they used to in drama with a smiley face or a sad face. It's this idea of, of putting forth something that's not really true on the inside. And he said, the wisdom from above is, is all of these beautiful things. It's without hypocrisy. What's the point? The point is this. Every Sunday, we gather around the Lord's table, whether in this building or at home, to remember the love of our Savior, to remember, as Eric did such a nice job with this morning in really getting our thoughts focused, not only with the songs, but with the sentiments that he voiced. We think of that pain, and we think of that struggle, we think of that agony, we think of all of those things that, 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 that were present in the crucifixion experience for our Lord. You know, there's a passage in Hebrews that talks about those who fall away in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and it says, they crucify to themselves the Son of God all over. You're familiar with the passage, right? And we say, I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want to crucify Jesus again. I don't ever want to put Jesus through all that pain again, even if I could. I know he died once for all, but I, I don't want to crucify him to the world all over again. He's gone through more than enough for my sin. What I want us to understand this morning is that Jesus, it grieved him, it hurt him when he saw everything that was in men's hearts. And so the point of this morning's lesson is simply this. We need to make sure that we're doing everything we can not to further break our beloved Savior's heart by what he encounters when he looks into ours. I know we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and I myself am as guilty as the next person of not always having the, the, the absolute purest of intentions or anything else. I, and I'm just being honest, I think we all, all of us, can identify with that. But the point of this morning's lesson is he knows what's there, and it grieves him when it ain't right. We need to do all we can to make sure that we don't hurt him anymore. He's hurt enough. He knows what's in there. And if there's something in there that shouldn't be, we need to pray and get it out. We need to purge it. We need to lose it. 
Maybe you're not one of those. Maybe you never struggle with a bad thought or a bad intention or a less than Christ-like, uh, less than Christ-like attitude ever in your life. Praise God. I'm sorry I bored you with this sermon if that's you. <laughs> but if that's not you, if that's not you and you need help with that, I'm going to offer an invitation in a moment. You can come forward for the prayers of the church. But before we do that, I'm going to ask that you all join me in prayer as we conclude. Our Father in heaven, words, words spoken from now until you come to get us can never express the totality of the goodness that you have given us in Christ Jesus. Father, we know that even as Christians, sometimes we struggle to say and do the right things, and we struggle even more sometimes to always think the right thing about all things, including one another. And we pray, Father, from the bottom of our hearts for forgiveness for that. We pray, Father, that you will not only give us forgiveness, but help us from this day forward to always determine to do everything in our power to hit our knees when we need to, to do everything in our power, to always have the purest of hearts, the purest of intentions, the most selfless and sacrificial way of looking at things that we possibly can, so that when Jesus looks deep into our hearts, when you look deep into our hearts, that you are pleased with what you see there. Help us always to treat one another with love compassion, mercy, tenderness, forgiveness, because those things are what's in our heart for one another, as those are the things in your heart for us. Father, we love you. We pray that if there's any soul here this morning, that they will respond either to the invitation in public or this afternoon privately in prayer, whatever it takes. Father, help us all from this day forward not to hurt Jesus by what's inside of us or what comes out of us in our dealings with one another. Thank you for your sweet grace and mercy that has forgiven us when we have failed to do that. Help us to be strong and not do it anymore. We love you. We thank you in Christ's name. If there's anybody here this morning who has not responded to the gospel call by being baptized into Christ or if you need further prayers for anything, please come to the front while we stand and while we sing.